Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. This is Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton, and today we're discussing cheap oil. Prices at the pump are a dollar less than they were a year ago. That is good news for drivers and bad news for oil companies. What does cheap gas mean for cleaner fuels? What does it mean for U.S. energy security and geopolitics? Over the next hour, we'll address those questions and explore the future of oil in a hot and crowded world. Joining our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we're pleased to have with us three energy experts. Jason Bordoff is director of the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. He's a former special advisor to President Obama on the staff of the National Security Council. Kate Gordon is a senior policy advisor to Risky Business, a group focused on the business of risk of fossil fuels that is headed by billionaire Michael Bloomberg, former U.S. Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson, and Tom Steyer, a billionaire and climate advocate. And Bill Riley is a former board member of the oil company ConocoPhillips. He was head of the U.S. EPA under the first President Bush and is now a senior advisor to TPG Capital, a private equity firm. Please welcome them to Climate One. Thank you all for coming up. Bill Riley, 10 years ago, the consensus view in the U.S. energy industry was that demand would go up and supply would go down for U.S. fossil fuel production. What really happened? (laughs) My own view is that uh, if you look at the world energy situation, there are three demand areas, basically the United States, Europe, and China. And uh, projections were very different 10 years ago for Uh, the future economies of two of those areas. Economies have slowed in both China and in Europe. And um, in the United States, something has happened, which I think is really very, very significant. It's never happened in my career before. It started happening about five years ago. We leveled off in terms of vehicle miles traveled. And Americans are driving fewer miles today. Now, there are more of us, there are more cars that are being sold and manufactured every day, but at the same time, we're driving less. I think that's a very significant uh, and probably important continuing change in our economy. 
There are two reasons generally given for it. Well, the, the high gasoline price was thought to have something to do with it at the time, but it hasn't changed since the downturn. It um, has to do, it would appear, with the fact that a lot of millennials are retiring and moving into cities, and, um, or rather, a lot of millennials are pre- preferring to live in cities, and some of the baby boom generation are retiring, and uh, they're choosing cities and densely settled areas as well. That has profound consequences, I think, for the future. I would give a non-mainstream view about the future that I think is uh, we're going to see a continuing reduction in demand. In fact, if the 54.5 mile per gallon requirement, fuel efficiency requirement, is maintained, and I expect it will be, that anali- the analysis indicates that will reduce by more than 2 million barrels a day consumption in the United States. Similar things are happening in Europe. If you look then at the Chinese situation, they have a lot of shale gas. They haven't yet figured out how to develop it. It presents some other challenges that uh, they're going to have to overcome. But if they dent even slightly for their economy, their demand for oil, what that portends is a reduction in demand that in the three major areas that now constitute the most of it. Uh, you can look at then the supply and realize that a lot of countries have shale gas that have not developed it yet. I think they will find ways to develop it. And um, once that happens, it's very possible that we could see a cascade of new supply at the same time as we see a decline in demand. And we will then, I think, see the oil price follow the gas price, the natural gas price in the United States, which is trending down. So you think it could still go lower than it already has? That Some people think it might have bottomed out and be on the rebound. Uh, Boone Pickens thinks it's going to be back to 118 months, but you think it could go further down. You know, it's really risky. You want to, as a rule I've learned in, in public life, make the predictions that, you, that are that firm be for a period well beyond your own retirement. Uh, so for, for, for me to predict the oil price, I think it's very possible that in 18 months, there's currently a backlog of storage and supply. Once that's been worked off, I think you could see an uptick in the oil price in the maybe $75, $80 range. I guess, I guess I would hazard that I don't think it's going back to 100 Jason Bordoff, are we going to... People forget, people forget that as recently as the late 90s, it was in the single digits, a barrel of oil. And then it was $20, I think, as recently as, um, as the early 2000s. Was it 2004? Somewhere in that range. So um, this is a cyclical commodity in terms of price, and um, I suppose will continue to be. Jason Bordoff, is oil going back to $100? Um, not anytime soon. You know, will it ever? Probably. I mean, uh, the, uh, directionally speaking, the next barrel of oil you figure out how to pull out of ground is more difficult and more costly than the last one. And we see people going to extraordinary lengths as... Uh, as you know well from your time with Conoco, everyone else going into the Arctic, going to the ultra deep water pre-salt off Brazil. So these are costly barrels to extract. Uh, but I think uh, I think for a variety of reasons, we kind of, as Bill said, got used to $110, $120 barrel oil as being the norm. That's actually historically extraordinarily expensive. The average oil price over the last three to four years has been uh, the highest it's ever been in history, adjusted for inflation. Even today, the price of oil adjusted for inflation is 
historically pretty high. Uh, so again, it's hard to predict the price of oil, but I think uh, we won't be back at 100 anytime soon. We'll probably be in this range of 60 to 80 for several years, but it's easy to see it dipping further before it comes back up. So could it go down to 30 or 40 before it comes back? I think that's definitely possible. Jason Burroff, there's one other change that happened in the last 10 years, this big shift in U.S. energy, global energy, is that <coughs> consumers have become producers and producers have become consumers. So uh, sketch that out for us, what that means. Yeah, I mean, it's connected to what Bill was talking about. It is a pretty uh, – we're seeing really historic shifts for people who spend their time thinking about energy the way we do, the way many of you do. Uh, this is a – you know, I think the next – Dan Jurgen, who writes the next book on energy history, will look at this moment in time as a really transformational one in a lot of ways. One is obviously what's happening with the cost of renewables and, and, and the potential climate impacts we need to deal with. But the other is what's happening in the oil and gas market globally. So if you uh, – Bill was talking about demand from the U.S. or Europe or China. If you look at, notwithstanding the downturn and the flattening of demand we've had here, if you look at all the projections for oil demand looking out into the future, you know, it's all in the range of 800,000 to a million barrels per day per year increase as far as the eye can see, that I can easily see a scenario where that uh, ends up being lower, where we, 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 we dramatically reduce oil demand. But if you look at oil demand in the Middle East, the CEO of Saudi Aramco recently said on its current trajectory by 2030, the Saudis will not export oil. If you look at the internal growth rate of demand for oil within that country. Wow, that's look, big. That's yeah, really big. So yeah. uh, Middle East has rapidly growing demand for oil. If you look at Latin American countries, they have rapidly growing uh, demand for oil. So the places we thought of as the producers of oil, uh, the Middle East, Venezuela, uh, these are rapidly growing uh, demand centers. Uh, Africa, and obviously Nigeria is a major producer. Uh, if we accelerate rates of economic growth, pull hundreds of millions or a billion more people out of poverty, as I hope we can, that has huge impacts on demand for energy. At the same time, the places that we thought of as being the major consumers of energy, and the U.S. by far is you know, the leader in this, but Canada too and some other places, are now where the vast majority of the supply growth has come from over the last um, over the last several years. U.S. oil production is up 4 million barrels a day since 2008, I think. Uh, that's a staggering turnaround in U.S. oil production, right? We, we, we consume uh, oil imports have gone from 60% to 20% of our consumption. Uh, so uh, when we think about what has offset the disruptions we've seen around the world, the sanctions against Iran, the Libyan civil war, even though prices were over 100, the reason they didn't spike over 150 uh, or 170 was because the U.S. more than made up that lost supply. Kate Gordon, are these low oil prices, hearing that they're high historically, but they're low adjusted for inflation, but low relative to recent years, are they good news or bad news for people who think we got to get off fossil fuels because of the climate imperative? No, it's a, it's a good question. I think, obviously, would agree with, with Bill that we would all be crazy to predict what will happen with these prices. Um, but the one thing that is predictable in oil markets is that they're volatile, and we will see unpredictability going forward. Um, and we'll see that because of a range of things. It's not just about production and demand. It's also, as we know from Katrina, about extreme events. It's about political instability. There's a number of things that affect these markets. So for consumers, I think the key is to keep the, uh, your, our eye on, and policymakers, our eye on reducing vulnerability to that kind of volatility. Um, doing that through reducing vehicle miles traveled, that's absolutely happening in the U.S. where I think car sharing is actually a big piece of that. Los Angeles reduced its VMT, vehicle miles traveled, by 8%, and they think that's mostly due to car sharing in L.A., which is a car capital, right? Um, 
But we're also seeing, um, unfortunately, the new low prices lead to a surge in demand for SUVs again. So in, in vehicles that use more, more gas, the key to me for policymakers and consumers is keeping our eyes on uh, policies that do reduce that vulnerability to volatility. So whether that's um, pushing electric vehicles, trying to move the vehicle fleet more into the electricity side, which has become far more renewable, whether it's uh, getting upgrades to vehicles that are newer and more efficient. That's the whole cash for clunkers thing. Um, I think we should not take that off the table. There's lots of people, especially here in California, driving 25-year or older cars, which are huge smog contributors, as well as being incredibly inefficient. So thinking about those transitions to new models of driving and to getting ourselves away from this model of having one kind of engine and one kind of fuel is incredibly important. But overall, for the U.S. economy, Bill Riley, low gas prices put cash in the pockets of American consumers and drivers and a lot of other industries, except for the oil industry, benefit from this. Isn't that right? No question about it. It's very good for the country. It's not, not just the, the low gasoline price, which you can argue presents opportunities that we would be very wise to take to uh, increase the federal taxes, to pay for infrastructure and pay for roads, among other things, and bridges. Very very directly related to, to automobiles and their traffic. But um, the reduction in oil price generally is a marvelous boon. I think it adds something like $40 billion to our, our uh, GDP. And uh, there's so many industries which are uh, benefiting from it. One thinks of, uh, well, chemicals, uh, some of which are returning from, from Europe and other countries. This is actually a concern of European policymakers that they're losing some of their edge in terms of Competitiveness because of the raw materials that uh, that chemical companies depend on to a disproportionate amount, being oil, um, the aluminum industry, uh, anything that involves travel, which is uh, recreational industries uh, that uh, have recreational parks, say Disney and the rest, or uh, or the cruise industry. You can just go straight through them. An interesting phenomenon, though, about the cruise industry that I'm particularly familiar with is that although a large part of their expense is fuel, they give back a certain amount of it if they're getting a lot of foreign revenues. The reason for that is is the strength of the dollar, and the strength of the dollar is owed to to the decrease in, in oil price and to our own production here at home. So for every $100 that's saved um, in fuel price, probably 30 or so is given back in terms of the higher foreign exchange consequences, which is which is interesting. It's a, this is a very complicated kind of interconnected set of realities that depend upon oil. But oil is such a fundamental commodity in so many industries and so many areas of life that, yeah, yes, it's the reduction in cost. It definitely has some undesirable consequences for some industries. And in Texas, for example, uh, got $15 billion in receipts for its schools and for the public from its oil taxes last year. Five or six years ago, when the oil price was down around, I think, 20, it, uh, it got just a little more than half of that. So there are those consequences. Alaska is another state that will suffer from this depressed price. But by and large, it's a very positive thing. Jason Bordoff, will car makers move away from gas-sipping cars and start? Are we going to see the return of the Hummer? Uh, well, probably not the Hummer, but um, car makers respond to consumer demand. So uh, if consumers decide that uh, 
you know, cheaper gasoline uh, is here to stay for whatever, because we've forgotten that it goes up and down a lot, <laughs> and it's probably going to go up and down again, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll respond to that. So I think there'll be some of that. Look, I think uh, there are all the benefits Bill talked about I completely agree with. There are a host of geopolitical benefits I'm sure we'll talk about mm-hmm. from an, an, an oil demand and emission standpoint. Lower prices are not a good thing. So people respond to demand, and on the margin, you're going to consume a little bit more. You're going to drive a little bit more. Maybe you make a different choice about what kind of car you'd buy. That's why I think um, policy is so important, and I think what prevents us from returning to the Hummer uh, is the fact that we have aggressive fuel economy standards, and hopefully in the midterm review, uh, we stick to them um, in the U.S., and then obviously, you know, other countries are, some, not all, moving forward with their own efforts to reduce oil demand. Through, but policy is going to be the key driver. Kate Gordon, one of the reasons that U.S. supply has expanded is fracking. Environmentalists hate it. Business think it's been a boon. Has fracking been good for America under driving the way we've been talking about? I'm actually going to answer, going to respond to Jason before answering that. Um, Your answer was yes. No, I'm just going to respond to Jason first and just say just a a point on the vehicle answer, which is something I think doesn't get seen a lot, which is there are equity issues with, uh, even with the fuel, with the way people buy vehicles. One interesting thing we see here in California is the secondary vehicle market. When people are buying more efficient vehicles who change over their vehicles a lot, the secondary vehicle market tends to be less efficient. So the vehicles available to people who are lower income and buy off of used car markets then become all of the inefficient vehicles. So it's sort of an interesting uh, side thing that tends to happen is that you'll see people switching to more efficient vehicles and then all the secondary vehicles available become uh, less efficient and then the people driving them have less ability to pay their gas bills. So it's just one thing that we don't think about as much because the secondary vehicle market's not tracked very well. Um, On the fracking point... I think fracking is an incredibly complicated issue. I think it's, I actually don't necessarily trust anyone who has a pat answer to that question. <laughs> it's, uh, we've been doing hydraulic fracturing in California for a very long time. We've just added it to horizontal drilling recently. That's the new innovation. Um, and there are people on one side, I mean, there, there are issues with doing that through sensitive aquifers, especially in California where we have drought conditions and we cannot afford our aquifers to get Uh, contaminated with um, chemicals. On the other hand, there's very good science to show that it's possible to contain those chemicals and not have them leak into the aquifers. So I think it's it's a complex issue. It's very regionally specific. What fracking means in Pennsylvania is very different than what it means in California. Um, I think it's a complex issue, and I don't I honestly don't think there's just one answer to it. I know that sounds like a hedge, but I think it's I think it's tough. I do think given that Fracking happens often through aquifers and uh, and geologically sensitive areas of of, uh, of California in particular. Um, I do think that we should be pushing for the most stringent policies possible to contain methane and contain those chemicals. Wellhead um, reinforcing the concrete at the wells, doing reinforcement on the pipelines, and not doing fracking in areas that are incredibly geologically sensitive. I think that's just good practice. Bill Riley, would you want fracking near your home? No. No, I think, uh, I think fracking has the disadvantage in that uh, typically it does result in a certain amount of industrialization, often in remote areas, at oh, countrysides. Beautiful rural America. Uh, yes, if that's what, uh, and I think I, I would respect local option on some of these things. But um, no, I think it has trade-offs. But they're the trade-offs associated with development and growth generally is what they are. So 
And Kate's right. It's been going on for a long, long time. Natural gas wells have not been controversial until the technique became better known and the production and the impact in North Dakota and other states. And also, I would say the, the unfamiliarity of uh, people in Pennsylvania and New York to this mode of activity, maybe even southern Ohio, that uh, and the profits to be made, I think, led a lot of people who really didn't know what they were doing to start doing fracking. And so you had contamination of water bodies, of uh, rivers, reservoirs, and things of that sort. Many of the major oil company people were contemptuous of that because they said this is not... It's not difficult to sink. They do it every day to, to sink a well down that has no uh, invasion, no consequence, no, no uh, involvement with the aquifer. And the, the, the gas is typically an oil well below the aquifer. But um, one other thing I would say, and, it, and we, I think, as environmentalists should take it into account, the president made a commitment to reduce by 17% our greenhouse gases. He made that commitment in Copenhagen and by, by 2020, and we're on track to do that. We're up at 12 or 13 or something, I think. The reason for that is thanks to fracking. Not People don't like to hear it, but it's, it's the fracking that has produced the tight oil and that has, um, has given us um, uh, some of these alternatives to um, coal-fired power. And we've seen so much decline in the way of commitments to take coal-fired power plants out of action and to replace them with gas fire power, which is, uh, from a point of view of emissions, a great improvement. The oil and gas industry is, is really what developed the technology to allow that to be possible. Bill Riley is a former head of the U.S. EPA. Our other guests today are Climate One or Kate Gordon from the Risky Business Project and Jason Bordoff from Columbia University. I'm Greg Dalton. Jason Bordoff, let's talk about the geopolitics of the low oil prices. How has that affected the geopolitics of oil with respect to Russia, Iran, and U.S. interests? Yeah, it's really quite significant. Uh, and and, and you know, so I sort of talked before about this dramatic shift we've seen. Uh, so let me mention, let me, let me give two examples. Um, we talked about the enormous increase in U.S. oil production, 4 million barrels a day. And the question is, what does that mean? People will recall, maybe, uh, that after World War II, uh, the U.S. was the swing supplier in the global oil market. We were the balancer, right? We, the Texas Railroad Commission artificially restrained oil production, and they didn't allow the country to produce as much as it can to prevent price spikes, so we could put more oil on the market if we needed to. Over time, consumption went up. We suburbanized uh, for a host of other reasons, and we kept importing more and more uh, oil, and by March 1971, for the first time in history, uh, they lifted the quotas, and they said, go and produce as much as you can. And then two years later, the Arab oil embargo happens, and then the OPEC, and most recently, mostly Saudi Arabia, have, re have, have held that mantle. They have been the places with swing uh, spare capacity, the ability to put more oil on the market, or the willingness to hold oil off the market that they could otherwise have sold. And that's given them a huge amount of leverage in the global oil market. Um, the oil price started to decline last year. People thought that OPEC, again, the Saudis, would respond by pulling supply back to prop the price up. And on an, uh, November of last year, they had a meeting and they said, no, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to let the price fall. We're going to let the market balance. We're going to let the price. We're really cheap producers. Why should we not sell our oil? We're going to let the price fall and we're going to let higher cost producers like uh, some people thought it might be like the U.S., but maybe like other countries, uh, Canada, Russia, elsewhere, 
we'll let them cut back production because it doesn't make economic sense. Uh, it turns out that whatever people thought the break-even price of U.S. shale oil was a year ago, it's actually much lower than people thought. U.S. oil production is going to continue to grow, not as quickly, but continue to grow even at lower prices. And that means over time, the market comes into balance with other countries, high-cost producers like uh, some of the ones I mentioned, cutting production. And shale oil is different than conventional oil because it is very responsive. It goes offline really quickly for reasons we can talk about, and it comes back online really quickly. So that means potentially that uh, as the price starts to rebound, the U.S. supply comes back very quickly, and now the U.S. Uh, supply, the economics of U.S. shale are setting a soft floor on the world price rather than OPEC. That's a historic shift. We're going to learn over the next few years if what I just said is true, but that is well, very plausible, I think. What it means for other countries like, uh, you know, we can talk about each one of these for a while, but Russia combined with sanctions, the low oil price has meant that the ruble has fallen uh, by half. We've had about $150 billion of capital flight from the country, severe economic pressure on that country, whether it brings Putin to the negotiating table and to pull back aggressive actions in Ukraine remains to be seen. We see, unfortunately, things going in the opposite direction. Uh, And I think countries like Venezuela and Nigeria don't get talked about enough because of what the oil price collapse could mean for real chaos in those countries. The potential Venezuela was already in an economic uh, downward spiral uh, and the ability for lost oil revenue to mean that that country really falls into economic collapse. Same with Nigeria and what the spillover effects would be for Venezuela's support of fuel subsidies and the Petrocrib program through the Caribbean or Nigeria's ability to fight Boko Haram and terrorism. There could be a lot of worrisome spillover effects as a result of the oil price collapse. Does it strengthen in the U.S. hand with regard to Iran? Uh, potentially. So, I, I mean, I think the oil, the oil uh, boom we saw in the U.S., and I was in the administration when we were implementing sanctions against Iran, when I think the sanctions were more effective than many people thought they would be at the time at actually um, pulling oil off the market. Iran, Iran is selling a million, a million and a half barrels a day less oil than it otherwise would. Oil is a really fungible commodity. It's easy to sneak its way into the world black market. And part of the reason it was effective was not just because of the threat of sanctions, but because of aggressive diplomacy on the part of the U.S. and others to persuade purchasers of Iranian oil like China and India to stop purchasing Iranian oil and purchase other oil instead. And the fact that you could go to them and say, uh, you're not going to pay an economic penalty for doing that because we're going to pull all this Iranian supply off the market, but the U.S. alone is going to more than make up the lost supply, actually made those negotiations much easier, I think. Um, the question now is in a low-price environment, does it make Iran more likely to come to the negotiating table in June at the next uh, P5 plus 1 negotiations? and agree to, you know, un, uh, dismantle their nuclear program, um, that, that's a much tougher question. And, and, you know, I think the impact of the oil price drop on Iran has been less severe than on some other countries, only because they've had two or three years where many of these effects have already been felt as they've had their oil supply, their oil sales already uh, scaled back. So it still has hurt them quite a bit. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of factors that are going to determine whether they're willing to, to, to get out from their nuclear program. Bill Riley, Cuba's about to open up. Are we going to see an uh, oil boom in Cuba? There's a lot of oil in Cuba. Well, the Cubans certainly hope that uh, there will be. They have every reason to develop their offshore oil and gas. Uh, they get about half of what they need from Venezuela. That's an increasingly uh, unreliable partner and supplier, as Jason has implied. I think that... Um, Cuba has to be very careful in how it develops its, uh, its offshore oil. They don't have any experience with it. They drilled three holes, unsuccessfully dry holes so far. And um, 
One of them is 18,000 feet. You know, this is significantly deeper even than uh, Macondo, the BP well that um, that uh, blew out in 2011, causing so much damage in the Gulf. They um, also, it would seem to me, ought to have a significant um, capacity for renewables. They're a very sunny country. It's a place that doesn't have a great uh, demand for electrical energy right now. It's going to go up, presumably, if they do begin to industrialize and develop their economy once there's relations with the outside world, principally the United States, do in fact begin. And I would hope that they could learn from some of the experiences in the United States, in Nevada, in California, now in Texas, where you have utility-grade solar that provides very substantial amount of electrical energy. And, and, and not, we're not just talking small amounts anymore. I think Austin, Texas is getting something like 200 and some megawatts that it's uh, committing for, a, I think one assumes here reports of uh, 20 years at least down into the future. This is going to make a huge difference to places like Cuba. If they're able to do the contracts, bring it on. They've not been very good about having contracts with, uh, with outside companies because they um, insist on hiring all of the employees in Cuba of those con- uh, companies. Um, they typically pay $20 a month. Uh, that's, I think, something like 75 to 80% of Cubans who work do, in fact, get those kinds of salaries. They're supplemented, obviously, by health and education and, and all the rest benefits that they have. But um, this is not a modern functioning economy by any means. And um, they have so many needs. They import the grain necessary to, for chickens. They don't have enough grain. They import the grain from Illinois and Indiana. They import the chickens from, from Arkansas. And... Um, in fact, there is more interpenetration of their economy with the United States economy than one imagines. But one, one can only hope that gradually we will see them begin to enjoy some of the benefits that uh, industrialized countries have. And one of those in the Gulf uh, is that, if not in Cuban waters, certainly very nearby, there are very substantial reserves of oil. We're talking about the future of oil and gasoline at Climate One. We'll be right back after this break. And now, a Climate One Minute. With gas prices so low these days, it's easy to forget the hard times. In 2008, oil hit $147 a barrel, and Americans were paying nearly $5 a gallon at the pump. When former CIA director Jim Woolsey was our guest in 2013, he suggested that breaking the oil cartel was a matter of giving drivers a choice of recipes. Suppose Britain or the United States had policies as sound as those of Brazil, China, and Israel, so that you could pull into a filling station and choose there what you wanted to drive on. You didn't have to get permission from any bureaucracy. You didn't have to get permission from a cartel like the one that runs the oil market now, OPEC. You just chose, and you drove off. In Brazil, it's ethanol because uh, sugarcane is great down there and it all fits. The Israelis are moving toward their second fuel being methanol with an M. In other words, uh, cleaning fluid, uh, uh, not uh, rot gut whiskey. Those countries are starting to make it possible to pull into a filling station and decide what you want to buy. And what they are finding is that cleaning fluid methanol with an M is a good deal cheaper and seems to drive cars just as well as gasoline. 
That was Jim Woolsey, CIA director under President Clinton, speaking with Climate One in 2013. Now back to Greg Dalton and our live audience at the Commonwealth Club. We're back at Climate One. Time for our lightning round. We're going to ask each of our guests today uh, a yes or no question, series of yes or no questions, and then we're going to ask them to complete a sentence. Um, Kate Gordon, Republicans have achieved more environmental protection over the past 50 years than Democrats, yes or no? Yes. Bill Riley? Yes. Jason Bordoff? Come on, Jason. (laughs) Republicans have achieved more environmental protection over the last 50 years than Democrats. We know you worked for a Democratic president, but yes or no? Uh... I don't know the answer to that firmly enough to say. My speculate, I, 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 but but I mean, there's good reason to think the answer might be yes, but I'm not sure. <laughs> Was thinking about President uh, Nixon creating the EPA, Clean Water Act, uh, President Reagan doing the Montreal Protocol, President first President Bush doing the first cap and trade program. Uh, next question: The climate impact of the Keystone Pipeline is exaggerated by its opponents. Jason Bordoff. Yes. Yes. Bill? Kate Gordon. None of your environmentalist friends are in the room, so you can tell us what you <laughs> Exaggerated by opponents? Is, is that Correct. what you're saying? The climate impact of the Keystone Pipeline is exaggerated by its opponents. Yes. In 2009, a bill passed through the House under the leadership of Nancy Pelosi to put a price on carbon pollution. It was a cap-and-trade bill. It died in the Senate. Uh, Bill Riley, President Obama could have pushed a climate bill through Congress in 2009 if he really tried. Yes or no? <sighs> Not and also probably one health care reform. It's a no. Kate Gordon? Could have Obama gotten a deal in 2009? The president is not the only person who gets these deals. I don't think the conditions were right for a deal. Jason Bordoff? I think the administration tried. It was very difficult. I'd like you to ask, uh, to complete uh, these two sentences, just the first word that comes to your mind. Um, Kate Gordon, Republicans who publicly deny climate disruption and privately acknowledge it are what? <laughs> Scared. Bill Riley? Responding to constituency pressures. That's not one word. Democrats. In the small. In the small. Jason Bordoff, Republicans who publicly deny climate disruption and privately acknowledge it are um, not being courageous. Cowards. Okay. Bill Riley, climate advocates who make apocalyptic predictions are what? Unhelpful. Jason Bordoff? Understandable, but not as constructive as they could be. Understandable. Kate Gordon. You never get one word out of an academic. (laughs) (laughs) He's a professor. He's wired for, yes. Kate Gordon, climate advocates who make apocalyptic predictions are... This isn't going to be one word either, but... um, Hyphenate. You can get two if you hyphenate. Now I'm going to do a Bill Riley answer, a longer answer. Uh, Winning the battle but losing the war. 
My answer is depressed, but okay. Um, <laughs> that's it for They're our... making themselves more depressed by having a positive <laughs> prediction. Our lightning round. Um, Bill Riley, ConocoPhillips, you were on the board of that oil company, has pulled away from the Canadian tar sands. Do you think that the lower oil prices are going to keep some of the tar sands in the ground? I think they're likely to slow the rate of expansion of oil sands. I don't think they're going to block it um, because the opportunities, frankly, are so much better in the Permian and the Bakken and the Eagleford Shale place in the lower 48. Uh, the lifting costs are vastly less in a lower price environment. Uh, that and uh, the oil sands and also, I would say, the uh, offshore Arctic are much less attractive from an economic point of view. Climate people who Jason Bordoff for those people can cons- no. No, no no we're, we're, we're back, back to, to um, uh, Jason Bordoff for those climate people who want think that one of the upsides of, of cheap gas which makes it easier to drive more will keep the dirty tar sands in the ground is that just a temporary thing or is that a longer term thing. Uh, no, it's a temporary thing. I mean, the oil sands resource is an enormous one, and over time, if oil demand continues to grow, uh, oh, you know that supply is going to come from lots of places, including from Canada. We've seen a tremendous boom in the movement of oil by rail in the United States, which worries me from a safety perspective. And there are a lot of ways to get oil to market uh, by by pipeline or trains or barges or trucks or other things. Uh, it probably, you know, it may not be as developed as quickly. It may get pushed back a little bit, you know, but, but over time that resource is there unless policy takes us toward a different place, unless it reduces demand, unless it puts a price on carbon. And I do actually want to amend the answer I gave before when you asked if Republicans have done more than Democrats. Uh, yes, you have the Clean Air Act and the Montreal Protocol, but I think it's important to look at the net impact, not the gross impact of any particular policy. And so the efforts from the Republican Party to push back against efforts to put a price on carbon or put in place meaningful climate policy. If you look at the net impact of the efforts by the Republicans versus the Democrats, then no, I think the Democrats end up in a better place. I think your job in a future Democratic administration. (laughs) (laughs) But Bill, you you would agree because the Republican Party of the Nixon era is not the Republican Party of this current era. And the Republicans today have pushed back on uh, environmental regulations saying that they kill jobs for the economy, and you have a different view. I do have a different view. I mean, I, I, would, say, I would say, first of all, that um, it needs to be acknowledged. There's, there's a tendency, I think, in the environmental community to assume that it's all the Koch brothers and, and money that explains these policies. Um, I think we all know members of Congress who, as you offered a little while ago, believe in climate change, understand the science, but uh, are not supporting didn't support cap and trade and wouldn't support a carbon tax for reasons of constituency concerns and pressure. I can think of several where that's true. Um, the, and, and it doesn't have anything to do with money. These are established members of Congress who uh, have plenty of money to run in their primaries, irrespective of, of where they stand on climate. But constituency pressures uh, do explain some of it. I take a lot of encouragement from the fact that uh, 15 Republican United States senators did recently vote to recognize, affirm that humans are impacting on the climate. I think that's the kind of breakout that's very helpful to us. And I, I would go a little further. I wouldn't say that resistance to a carbon tax is a Republican or Democratic uh, priority. I'd be surprised if you could get a majority of Democratic senators to vote for a carbon tax in the United States. I think that's, uh, it's going to take a lot more, um, a lot more 
analysis and judgment that other alternatives to raise revenues are less desirable and that the carbon tax in some form is the least bad alternative before we're going to see a reasonable majority in both houses begin to take it seriously. There are people I respect in Washington who think that day may come. I'm doubtful that it will come anytime soon, but I think it would be a productive, very productive thing for the climate. I think it would be, frankly, having been one of the authors of Cap and Trade for the Sulfur Dioxide Program and the amendments in 1990, I think that a carbon tax is a more efficient way to deal with that economically than cap and trade would be. It's also the precedent that cap and trade went down in the Congress. And so let's try something else. And in the context of tax reform, which the president and leading Republicans have said they are for, um, the details obviously will divide them, but we may get, it could, it could be something that I think could be targeted to, along with returning the revenues to an equivalent amount to the taxpayers, could help pay for infrastructure and things that we can get a, a much more substantial amount of population and of our representatives to support. When some people here, ExxonMobil and other oil companies, support a carbon tax, they have a little bit of a cynical reaction. Those companies say they support it publicly, but they have lobbyists inside Washington who are doing everything they can, Jason Bordoff, to, to slow it down. Are they playing a double inside and, and public game? Um, there's a lot of um, a lot of variance in the oil and gas industry, so I think companies are in different places on this. Uh, I think that there are many uh, energy companies that are. Uh, not supportive of increasing uh, environmental regulations or putting in place uh, rules like the EPA rules, power plant rules, or other things to deal with emissions from the power sector. I I do think that there is, at least among parts of the uh, oil and gas industry, um, some recognition that uh, we can't just be against everything, but we actually need to start thinking about how to be for something. And relative to lots of alternatives, if we think that policies are coming on climate change, putting a price on carbon is the most cost-effective, the most efficient, the most direct way to do this. And uh, and, 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 and actually, you can't, we, we'll be open and receptive to like really having a conversation about uh, about putting a price on carbon. The CEO of Shell Oil said that recently. The the oil companies are not particularly credible if they're against everything. Um, Bill Riley, you said recently that Texas is where China was 10 years ago in terms of... What did you mean by that? Well, I have long been an advisor to the energy project of the Energy Foundation in China. China's Sustainable Energy Program is what it used to be called. And um, for so many years, in going to an annual exchange with senior leaders of the government of China... One was cautioned not to use the word climate change or global warming, because if you did, and I twice did, you got the spiel. You got a 15 to 20 minute peroration about how the problem had been caused by the developed countries, most notably the United States, and it should be on us to resolve the problem that was being inflicted on the rest of the world and so forth. However, the Chinese were extremely interested in getting help of experts on energy efficiency, on how to make a a ton of steel uh, for the same amount that it cost the Japanese, because it cost about 50% more in those years for to make a ton of steel in China, in a whole range of industries where they wanted to get the benefits of modern technology and at the same time uh, have the, the effect of reducing their pollution, which is a very serious and has been a growing problem in China, including carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide was not at that time the focus of those efforts, 
but it was the byproduct of energy efficiency improvements. Well, some years ago, I was associated with an investment in Texas with the purchase of a major uh, public utility, the largest public utility in Texas. And I remember being cautioned in explaining it, something along the same lines. Texans, by and large, don't want to hear about climate change or global warming. However, they believe very strongly in renewables. They're the leading renewable state in the country and have been for years. Many more renewables than, than, uh, than California, for example. They believe in energy efficiency. They believe in um, wind and, and solar and so forth, and they believe in energy independence. Well, you put all of those things together, you've got a, you've got a climate policy. If you don't want to call it that, fine, but uh, you can get there. And, and so I said somewhat flippantly that Texas is where China used to be on that issue, and, and not everybody in Texas, of course, is. There's some great commitments on climate that uh, many institutions in Texas have made. But um, the, point, the point remains that language is important, and um, somehow um, phrases like cap-and-trade and climate change and global warming have become supercharged so that uh, when you ask someone if they believe in global warming, uh, you almost have to follow it up with a paragraph of explanations of what kind of thing you're talking about and say, oh, it's not that bad thing that everybody's against in the right wing in Congress. Uh, well, it's the fact that, you know, the growing season is longer now, maybe, or, uh, or spring comes earlier, and people say, well, yeah, yeah. And then the question is, well, who's causing it? And that's a little more tendentious. But the public is really speaking on that. In many polling reports that I have seen, majority of the country does believe in warming and does believe that there's a human contribution to it, as informed by mainstream science. I think we're going to get there, and the fact that uh, we have seen the recent vote that we saw... Not a, not a binding policy, but a, but a public acknowledgement by significant uh, Republican senators, including Rand Paul, by the way, which surprised me, um, is encouraging. Bill Riley is a former board member at ConocoPhillips and former head of the U.S. EPA. We're talking about oil and gas here at Climate One. Our other guests are Kate Gordon, an advised, senior advisor to the Risky Business Project, led by Michael Bloomberg, Hank Paulson, and Tom Steyer. And Jason Bordoff is the director of the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University and a former advisor to President Obama. You can listen to this and other Climate One podcasts in the iTunes store, and you can join the conversation on Twitter using our handle, at Climate One. We're talking about cheap oil and gasoline at Climate One. Let's have our audience questions. Welcome. I have a question that has been an awful fun part of this debate over time, which is the issue of the use of corn to make products that were promoted to be a significant improvement in global warming and carbon taxes. So my question is, there's an appearance that there's a divide there between possibly British Petroleum and Shell and DuPont wanting to go to butanol. And then the question becomes, is it impacting our water supply? Being a carcinogen, is that something that should be of concern? We never check our water supply anywhere, ever. Thank you. So a response to that would be great. So who'd like to... Bill, Riley, you were on the board of DuPont, but the question, I think, is that... People advocated for corn as a climate solution. Corn turned out to not be so good. Cellulosic ethanol has been disappointing. Your thoughts? Well, if you, if you make the ethanol out of switchgrass or uh, something of the sort, uh, I think that you possibly do something very positive with respect to liquid fuels, and I would, I would support that. Um, 
I would not worry so much about contaminating the water supply with ethanol. I mean, we're, we're talking about replacing what, uh, some portion of the gasoline, and we've been managing that uh, with uh, some success for, I think, some time. So I don't think that would be the, the major problem. The major problem, I think, with the ethanol area is the enormous subsidies that have gone into it and um, for corn production. And certainly my, my recollection from having administered the Clean Air Act is that the advantages of ethanol as an additive are for wintertime NOx control. Uh, so it's been, it's been touted as doing something far more significant than that and reducing our dependency on foreign imports and the rest. Those arguments, I think, have lost a great deal of their appeal. Corn's been overhyped. Our next question, welcome to Climate One. Hi, my name is Dan Matross. I run the Energy and Environment Program at the Canadian Consulate General here in San Francisco. My question is actually for Jason. Earlier this week, Michael Bloomberg penned an editorial where he uh, suggested that uh, Obama make a deal with, uh, with Canada whereby they, he trades approval for the, uh, for the pipeline uh, in return for a climate deal that would be inspired by the one that he did with China last year. Should he pursue such a deal? <laughs> Jason brought off a grand bargain with Canada. Uh, I don't know if it's an explicit linkage. I think it makes a lot of I mean, I thought Mayor Bloomberg's op-ed, like most things Mayor Bloomberg says, was uh, quite reasonable and, and moderate and sensible. Uh, I think that it's important for the Obama administration to work with the Canadian government to put in place a host of policies that help reduce uh, emissions in both countries and particularly help keep Canada on uh, on track to meet some of its global uh, carbon uh, commitments, given the kind of production that we see there. Um, I think if, 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 if there were uh, credible and aggressive steps being taken by the Canadian government that showed, you know, how they might... Uh, the, get as a country, uh, you know, uh, on a lower uh, carbon trajectory, you know, that makes the environment to potentially approve the pipeline um, easier. Uh, but uh, but I think those, you know, those things are probably on, on separate courses. I don't think it's kind of like an explicit deal, uh, but I think it's kind of important to be working on both of those things. Kate Gordon, uh, ideas <coughs> of deals uh, using the Keystone Pipeline as some part of a deal have been around uh, environmentalists would howl and scream if uh, that happened, yes? I, I mean, I think Keystone, and it goes back to your lightning round question uh, and why I had a hard time answering it. I mean, Keystone has been, if you take it in and of itself as if it exists in a vacuum, I do think that the environmental consequences are overhyped, but nothing exists in a vacuum. Building the Keystone Pipeline is a decision to build out infrastructure that will last for decades. And we've seen with the highway system what happens when you do that. It's very hard to switch to new technologies and new infrastructure when you have something in the ground that's already massive and built and existing. So I think that the reason that the reactions to Keystone, most of them are Keystone as a symbol. And I think it would be very hard for people to see in some ways, a deal around that elevates it or, or minimizes it as it minimizes its impact far beyond what most people would like to see. It's a Could, very, very tough issue. On the other hand, I think we do need to get to a place with Canada uh, where we're in agreement on climate issues. And I'm half Canadian, so I feel particularly strongly on this point. Um, and we do need to get there. I'm not sure that's the way to do it. I don't, I don't, I don't think that they should be coupled. 
Let's have our next audience question. Welcome to Climate One. Great, thank you. I have a two-part question for Jason Bordoff. You've written extensively about lifting the ban on crude oil exports in the U.S., which may not align with our climate goals. Could you talk about some of the environmental policies, if that ban is lifted, um, that could ensure we can meet those climate goals? And my second question has to do maybe piggybacking off of your prior role with President Obama, your thoughts or comments on the U.S., China, and India climate deals and what impact they may, that may have in Paris this year. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, the, the issue of, uh, of oil exports is it's a little bit of a complicated issue to go into in terms of the important thing, a couple of points. We're still going to be a net importer of oil, whether we allow oil exports or not. That's different from natural gas. We're having a debate in Washington now over whether to allow oil exports because of the quality of the oil. The kind of oil we're producing in the U.S. Uh, is one that our refiners are not particularly well suited to handle. So the question is, should we allow people to send it to refiners in another part of the world? And then we'll import heavier oil here that our refiners would use. On the margin, if you do that, that's going to push up, uh, that's going to let U.S. producers fetch a little bit higher price, and that's going to probably boost U.S. production uh, a little bit. Uh, so that from, if we talk about all the benefits of increasing U.S. supply that Bill earlier talked about, for example, you know, that would be directionally a good thing. I think even more than that, because those impacts are probably pretty small, uh, it's just kind of the impact on our pushing for free trade deals overseas, our long-term commitment to free trade and uh, diplomatic partnerships with other countries and uh, the credibility that we have in international negotiations, I think that is sort of undermined when we've been pushing back against restrictions on rare earth minerals and other things in China, and then we put our own trade restrictions in place. In terms of the climate impact, the climate impact comes from the fact that Allowing crude exports may mean that the U.S. produces a little bit more, just like all the other policies, fracking and everything else we were talking about means we produce more, and if you produce more, you lower the world price, again, a little bit, and that has some impact on demand. Let me jump in here okay. on India being pressured by the U.S.-China deal. I mean, I think the U.S.-China deal was a huge achievement. I think it was a great step forward in trying to build on uh, cooperation between the two world's two largest emitters to hopefully make more progress in, uh, in Paris. Uh, and I think, um, you know, I, I think it's important to continue to put pressure on Modi in India to not just move forward with very aggressive and important uh, economic reforms, but to take air quality concerns and the emissions that are associated with economic growth, if you do it in a very coal-intensive way, take it more seriously. Let's have our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, this is uh, mainly a question for Bill. Um, a couple of months ago, the Saudi oil minister raised uh, what he called a black swan scenario where oil demand uh, basically went to zero in 2050, or he, he phrased it as no demand for our oil, perhaps Saudi exports. If you look at the major oil companies, they still see us burning 120 million barrels by 2030, 2040. Do you think big oil is myopic in terms of thinking about potential technology breakthroughs, that sort of thing? But most business-as-usual scenarios cannot really accommodate a step change. A technology breakthrough of tremendous proportions and one that would be uh, likely to make a huge difference is, is one that I think is going to come, and that is a, a technology breakthrough that allows us to store energy efficiently so that all of a sudden renewables uh, no longer need, for example, a significant amount of natural gas to make, uh, make wind power work, natural gas or nuclear, to, uh, to provide energy when the, when the sun's not out or the wind doesn't blow. So I think that uh, the 
decline in that 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 the increase in fossil fuel use uh, that's anticipated by most of those companies, I personally think, as I said earlier in the program, is exaggerated, is is not correct. I think that uh, we may see in the near term a continuing gradual uptick in the number of barrels used, but uh, produced and consumed. But I think over time, uh, it's going to level off. And by 2050, I would be surprised if uh, we don't have a very substantial contribution from renewables, much more so than most of those uh, projections do anticipate. But if you look at business as usual, and in the absence of significantly constraining policies on carbon emissions, then uh, one has to accept that those analyses have a lot more plausibility. Welcome. Next question. Uh, Hi. So sort of following on the previous gentleman's question, there have been enormous cuts to uh, E&P CapEx, um, and a lot of those cuts have come in the areas of so those long-life projects, say uh, very deep water or like the tar sands, for example, which, you know, they have 30- and 40-year asset lives. So the low oil price today is actually potentially setting the stage for a significantly higher oil price in the future based on the fact that, yes, shale oil can be turned on and off very quickly, but the decline rates are much higher. So we're sort of setting the stage for significantly higher prices in the future if you assume that underlying demand doesn't fall out. I just wonder what your thoughts are. And CapEx is capital expenditure. We're very close to the end here, so quickly, and then we'll wrap up. You know those, those reductions in both staffing and in capital expenditure on the part of the major oil companies worry me from another perspective, and that is um, more than a few people at the time of the disaster in the Gulf that BP had pointed to the fact that the previous era of the late 90s, for example, when oil was trading for seven, eight, nine dollars a barrel, resulted in the departure of a lot of very senior people, able professionals from the industry. They were given early buyouts. There were cutbacks. Uh, that happened Uh, I think, with consequences in the eyes of a lot of people and helped explain that we had fewer of the really best people who were on the rig the night that it blew because a lot of mistakes were made. That's something that uh, hasn't been looked at. I don't see that there's anything policy can do about it. We're dealing with a cyclical industry and commodity, but it's something uh, that worries me as someone who who once was very involved in in trying to respond to to that disaster. We have to wrap up. I want to ask, uh, finish by asking each of you the next big thing you will do to reduce your own personal carbon footprint. You've done a lot of things already. What's the next thing that you might do, uh, your goal for, for 2015 to reduce your personal carbon? Uh, Jason Bordoff? Uh, well, living in an apartment in New York City without a car uh, it, it helps lower your carbon footprint. Uh, but I travel. I fly a lot. And I would like to fly less, not only for climate change, but for my kids and my family. So that would be a goal for the next year. Less flying. Uh, okay. And it's cheaper when, with, uh, these days with the low uh, fuel prices. Bill Riley? Well, I installed 12 uh, photovoltaic panels uh, on my roof uh, out in the country last year. Uh, I don't plan to put in any more. Uh, they, they were, by the way, half as expensive as uh, 36 that we put on seven or eight years ago, which is a very practical, personal experience with the marvelous advances that we've made in solar energy in this country. Uh, Tesla in the garage, maybe? <laughs> uh, not likely, without a subsidy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't think Tesla is going to be subsidized soon. Kate Gordon? Um, uh, Less flying, and I'm also not planning on having any more kids. 
<laughs> okay, not touching that one. Uh, okay, we're ending that one I there. I have two already. I feel like, uh, I feel like that's uh, enough. Those little carbon emitters. They <laughs> are. Population. One of the worst things we can do, sadly. We've been talking about low gasoline prices with I Jason Bordoff, the founding director of the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University exactly. and a former advisor to President Obama. Kate Gordon, a senior advisor to Michael Bloomberg, Hank Paulson, and Tom Steyer. And Bill Riley, former head of the U.S. EPA. You can join this conversation on Twitter by using our handle at Climate One. I'd like to thank our audience here in the, the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco and online and on air. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Our producer is Jane Ann Chen. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineer is Andre Hurd and editor is Annie Chelsea. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future.